Good morning. Christ is risen. It's good to be here at Sanctuary again. I hope you've had and are having a good Christmas. I heard the report about your Advent conspiracy, and I wish my parents had heard that. My parents could have saved a little money that they spent to buy my six-year-old son an industrial-grade megaphone. <laughs> that could have better been given here. So we're, my wife and I, when we leave service today, we're going to drive 12, 14 hours back home to Cleveland, and in the car will be my son with that megaphone. My wife, thankfully, bought me noise-canceling earphones, so imagine our family on the way home, my six-year-old in the middle seat with the megaphone and me with the headphones, and pray for us. That's, that's the aftermath of Christmas for us. So this Tuesday will be Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany, and today, churches, many churches are celebrating Epiphany Sunday. For almost 1,800 years, the church has celebrated the Feast of Epiphany as the climax of Christmas. So that Christmas has the 12 days of Christmas climax in this feast that celebrates the revelation of Jesus to the world. Over the course of that 1,800-year history, the church has focused on different aspects of Jesus' story. In the Western churches, the focus primarily has been on the story of the Magi, the wise men who come from the East bringing their gifts. And the focus has primarily been on the revelation of God to the Gentiles, that God is God not only of the Jew, but of the Gentile. In the Eastern churches, the primary emphasis has been on Jesus' baptism, that moment where Jesus comes up out of the water and the Father's voice booms over him and the Spirit settles on him like a dove, and he's revealed as the one who's not only God's beloved, but the Savior of the world. But the minor note in that tradition, and actually the first sermon we have of a Christian preaching on Epiphany, is the story of Jesus turning water to wine. And so what I want to do with this morning, on this Epiphany Sunday, is talk about that story and how it reveals to us the way that God reveals himself. But to get to that, I'm going to basically have to work through the whole Gospel of John. So we need to pray first before we get started. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for opening up this space for us and gathering us as your people. Make us sensitive to your presence and your voice. Help us to hear what you're whispering to us. And enable us to be the people who can lean into your work and participate in it. And everyone said, Amen. Now, I'm not Joel Osteen in a lot of different ways. But I am going to start with a joke. So several days ago, I heard... The story about a man who had been convinced, no one knows exactly how, that he was a kernel of corn. Terrible, terrible thing to happen to someone, to become convinced that they're a kernel of corn. He, he had to quit his job. He wasn't eating. He wasn't sleeping. He's married with children, but he has, he's not doing anything. The family's falling apart. He's convinced he's a kernel of corn. So the family, in panic, try try to find a remedy. Finally, they introduce him into psychoanalysis. They bring him to the therapist, and week after week after week, there he is on the couch trying to talk through his problems, trying to discover why he believes he's a kernel of corn and how to deliver him from it. Weeks pass and months pass, hard work, day after day, trying to get this man to the realization that he's a man, he's a husband, he's a father. He's not a kernel of corn. And one day, they break through, and he has an epiphany. I'm a human being. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm not a kernel of corn. 
and the therapist is proud, the family is overjoyed, and they gather together in the office to celebrate. And the champagne is flowing, and every, people are praising God, whatever they do when you realize they're, they're a human being and not a curl of corn. And it's great joy all around. And then the family leaves, and he, the man who's had his deliverance, gets to the door, and right outside the door of the therapist's office is a chicken. Now, we don't know how the chicken got there, but there it is. And the man panics and rushes back into his therapist's office and says, there's a chicken outside. Why do you care? You know you're not a kernel of corn. You know you're a human being. Yes, yes, I know. I know I'm a human being. I know who I am. I know I'm not a kernel of corn. But I don't know if the chicken knows that. (laughs) And so I heard the joke and I laughed. And then I woke up the next day thinking about that joke. And wondering, why is that so funny? And then it wasn't funny anymore. It started to haunt me. And now I'm going to share it with you so it'll haunt you. Because I think that joke puts its finger on a nerve. Or at least it did for me. And, it, and here's, here's what I've come away with, for now at least. That I think that that joke reveals something about how discipleship has worked for me and in many of the churches that I know. And that is, we've been able to convince people to say the right thing about themselves. But then when they run into reality... When they run into darkness and brokenness, when they run up against the resistance of a world that's not what they want it to be, all of those fears resurface. So under the right conditions, while they're on the couch, so to speak, they can say, yes, I'm a child of God. Yes, I've been claimed by the Spirit. Yes, I know that I'm loved. But the moment that they encounter rejection, the moment that they come into temptation and difficulty, all of that fear rushes back on them. And they don't have enough conviction to carry them out into life in the world. So as long as they're in the safe environment of the church service, they can speak what sounds like truth. But when they're engaged in reality, the reality of lived life day to day, it doesn't feel to them like they have, in fact, come aware of who they are in God and in Christ. And so with that kind of radiating in the background, I want to talk about the Gospel of John, and the way John reveals to us the glory of God. John chapter 1, and we're going to, as I said, work through the Gospel of John and end with the story of the water turned to wine. And if you don't get anything else out of the sermon, at least you have a good joke to take away. Right? In the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1, verse 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now this is, for many of us, if not for all of us, a very familiar passage of Scripture. And I think sometimes it's so familiar that it doesn't work on us anymore. Many of us read Scripture like we visit the zoo. It, you, know, you know what it's like to go to the zoo. You take your kids to the zoo. You want them to see the animals. But it's part of going to the zoo is that it's a safe experience. And for many of us, reading Scripture is safe. We think we know what's there already, and we just go there again to be reminded of We want to get a hint of the wildness of God, a hint of the adventure of the life of faith. But we read Scripture thinking we already know what's there, and there's there's no risk in opening up Scripture. But when we read Scripture rightly, we put our lives at peril. 
Because when we read Scripture rightly, we're being drawn into the presence of a God who is a living God. And there's no telling what might happen. And I wonder sometimes if, if the shallowness and, and flatness of our discipleship is bound up with how comfortable we are with Scripture and how we only see what we think we already know is there. And we don't let the wildness of Scripture hit us. We don't see what these men are up to, what these texts are up to, and what God is up to in those texts. And because we don't let the wildness and the depth and the, the danger of these texts get at us, we kind of stay at a superficial level in our development as people of God. And what I want you to see in John chapter 1 is that it, it's actually doing something radically different from what we think is happening. John tells us this one, this word, Jesus, who was with God, was the light of all people. He insists on that. He's going to say it to us again and again. He's the light of all people. And then in verse 5 he says, This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Familiar phrase, but think about it for just a moment. We, we know how light and darkness work. We know that darkness is the absence of light, and that when light shines, darkness is dispelled. But John is saying, in this case, light and darkness don't work like that. This is the light that is the light of everyone, the light of all people. But when this light shines, the darkness remains. The light shines in the darkness. It doesn't drive the darkness away. It shines and the darkness remains. But the good news is the darkness does not overcome the light. So that when this light, that is the light of all people, shines in our world, it doesn't dispel the darkness, but neither is it defeated by the darkness. So that somehow, when this light comes, it's in the world with the darkness, not overcome by the darkness, but also not driving the darkness away. There was, he, that he goes on to say, a man from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself, John, was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone. Now for the second time we've been told, this light, Jesus, is the light of all people. He enlightens everyone. And this light was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. Again, I want you to notice how strange this claim is. He's the one in whom all things are made. He is the light of all people, the light that enlightens everyone. And yet when this light comes into the world, the darkness remains and people remain in darkness about the light. He brought them into being, and yet when he's among them, they don't recognize him. He came to his own, his own do not accept him. So John is pointing us to the strange reality that when God comes among us, we don't recognize God. When the light shines, it not only doesn't destroy the darkness, we remain in the dark about the light. The story of Christmas, for those of us who have been given faith, is a story about revelation, but the story of Christmas in the history of the world is a story about God coming among his creatures and not being recognized. Now, what could this mean? How can the light that enlightens everyone come into the darkness and the darkness remain? 
How can the creator of all come among the creatures and not be recognized as creator? Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. You've seen The Princess Bride. You remember the the famous line in the movie? You keep using that word. I don't think you know what it means. And that's what I want to say to John. You keep talking about light and glory. I don't think you know what those words mean. Because if you read the scriptures, you know that the glory of God is the revelation of God. When God's glory is present, it's undeniable that God is here and that we're not God. Wherever the glory comes, people fall on their faces dead. Whenever the glory shines, it's undeniable. This is God. This is the holiness of a God who made us and in whose presence we are undone. And yet John says, we've seen his glory and no one recognized it. The word glory means unrecognized, undeniable, recognizable presence. And now he's using the word to say that undeniable, recognizable presence was here and we somehow denied it and didn't recognize it. Then what is glory? What do you mean when you say we've seen his glory if it was present in a way we could still deny? If it was here and we still couldn't see it somehow? He presses us a bit more. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Now, notice what John has done. He's led us line by line, talking about light, and then glory, and then Moses, and then seeing God. And he, he ends this prologue by saying, no one has seen God. Just after he names Moses. Now, you've read the scriptures as well as I have. And you're thinking about the story of Moses seeing God. Seeing God's glory. You remember how it goes. Moses is on the mountaintop. The glory of God has settled on Mount Sinai. The people of, of Israel are so in, uh, intimidated, so overcome by the presence of God, that they say to Moses, you go up for us. We cannot draw near. So Moses goes into the cloud of glory. He receives the Ten Commandments. He comes back down the mountain to give it to the people, and he finds them there in the valley around the golden calf committing sins. Now, you can imagine the R-rated version or the PG version. They're breaking the law. And Moses throws down the tablets of stone and breaks them and goes back up into the mountain angry. And God says to Moses, that's it. I'm done with Israel. I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you. And Moses says, now, hold on, I'm mad, but I'm not that mad. You can't do that. You're God. You can't destroy your people. You have to forgive them. So God reluctantly agrees to do it. Moses talked, talked him into it. And then Moses receives two more tablets. He returns to the people, and they begin the process of repentance and turning back to the Lord. And then the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to let you go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, now, God, listen. You have to go. We don't want to go into the promised land without you. you. You must carry us into the promised land. And so again, God reluctantly agrees. All right, Moses, because I like you, I'll do it. And in the midst of that exchange, 
Moses says, show me your glory. Before I lead this people up, show me your glory. And God says, no one can see my face and live, but I will hide you in the rock. I will make my goodness pass beside you, and I will speak my name over you. Remember, this takes place. And when Moses comes off the mountain, his face is shining with the glory of God. So brightly that the people can't stand to look at it, and they require him to veil it. This is the story about which John just said, no one has seen God. John, what about Moses? That's undeniable. The glory is settled on the mountain. Moses enters into it, and when he comes out of the glory, his face is radiating with the light of God's presence. His face has been overtaken by the Shekinah, so much so we can't look at him. And John says, that's not glory, and that's not seeing God. Whatever that was, was nothing compared to true glory. Whatever that was, was nothing compared to really seeing God. Now, as odd as that may seem, it's not the only time in the New Testament that an apostle reads that story that way. Hebrews reads it that way, insists that we have not come to Mount Sinai with a thundering voice and dark clouds and lightning, but we have come into the presence of the living God. And Paul, perhaps most dramatically, reads it that way in 2 Corinthians. So Paul has planted this church in Corinth, and over time, They've turned from him to other teachers who are better teachers. They perform more miracles. They're more impressive. And Paul is writing to try to win the church back to his heart. And in the midst of his argument with them about why they should accept him as their father in the faith, he compares himself with Moses. And this is what he says. I'm not like Moses. We, my ministry team and I, we're not like Moses. Moses put a veil on his face, Paul says, to hide the fact that the glory was fading. Now again, this is not what the story says in Exodus. When you read Exodus, it says that Moses is required to veil his face because Israel cannot stand to see the radiance. But Paul says there's something else taking place here, and that is that Paul didn't want his humanity to be seen. Not Paul. Moses didn't want his humanity to be seen. That The glory that was radiating from his face would fade over time, and Moses didn't want them to know it was fading, and so he veiled it. Now, why are these apostles reading this story this way? What is up? Why in Hebrews and Paul and John do we get this appeal to the story of Moses seeing God, the glory of God on Moses' face, and then in every case, the apostles saying, that's not truly glory, that's not truly seeing God. Here's the secret, I think. Because to be human is to expect one kind of glory from God when what he wants to give us is his own glory. What he's doing is trying to save us from what we think we know about God, from what we think we know about glory, from what we think we want from God, so that when the glory really comes, it's not what we expect, and so we don't recognize it. That when it's fully present, it's not at all what we anticipated, it's not at all what we ask for, and therefore we don't know to receive it as gift. And what John and Paul and the writer of Hebrews are telling us is that when the glory comes, you only recognize it if you've been transformed into the character of the God who's revealing himself. And if you're not as humble as the God who's revealing himself, then it won't seem like glory to you. 
Because your expectations and your anticipations of glory have been shaped by the brokenness of the world. And we have an appetite for one kind of glory when what God wants for us is true glory. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, that was a lesser glory. The glory of Sinai, the glory that was shining on Moses' faith, that was nothing compared to the glory that I mean for you. Well, let's see how John works this out. There are two stories in John. There are more than two, but I'm going to talk about two this morning that I think press this point about the way God's glory works when it actually comes among us. And I'm going to start there in John 11 with the story of Lazarus and then move at the end to the story of the water turned to wine in John 2. John 11 opens, it's the story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. You're familiar with the story. Jesus is several days away from Lazarus and his family, and he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And instead of being a good friend and rushing to Lazarus' side, Jesus decides to wait. And the text makes it seem as if Jesus doesn't have anything to do. It's not like he's busy with something else. He just decides to wait. As I've told you many times, the Jesus of the Gospels is never as likable as the Jesus we've imagined in the Gospels. So here he is. He gets word. This man that he loves is sick. And he waits. And finally shows up late. I was speaking about this once in a church, and I made the point about how Jesus shows up he never shows up on time for us. He shows up on his own schedule. And some lady in the back said, he's always on time, brother. So um, she had to set me straight. I get that a lot. I get a lot of correction from the audience. and I'm open for that. But Jesus shows up late, and he's already dead. And Mary, the one who had washed Jesus' feet, says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you know how it leads. Jesus is led to the tomb. When he gets to the tomb, all of these mourners are around the tomb wailing over Lazarus' death. And Jesus himself weeps. It's the first verse we all memorized in Sunday school. And weeping here in the midst of, of all of this mourning, Jesus stands before the tomb. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. John eleven thirty eight. 38. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, whenever I've heard this story taught or preached, the assumption is we know what glory is revealed. He raised someone from the dead. And so in a kind of superficial way, we just assume that's what he meant when he said, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. He raised someone from the dead. That's a miracle. Until we stop to think about the fact that Lazarus dies after this. And there are many other prophets who have raised people from the dead who also died. 
So if his glory is in just raising Lazarus from the dead, then it's not a greater glory than the glory of other prophets, and it's a glory that is overcome by death. So his glory is not revealed in raising Lazarus from the dead. It's a neat trick, but it's not glory. So what is his glory then? What is he revealing, and to whom is he revealing it? Part of our problem, I think, and this is especially true for those of us who've been raised in kind of spirit-filled Pentecostal charismatic communities, we're really good at believing for God to do these kind of powerful miracles. We're not very good at living with the aftermath of them. So to give you an example, we're, when we have someone who's sick, we know how to exert our faith toward their healing. We know how to pray for God to break in in that moment and make their bodies well. But we're not so comfortable being with those people when they're dying and knowing how to be faithful in the moment of their passing. And it's, it's as if we've been nurtured in, in being able to believe that God's glory is revealed in Lazarus being raised from the dead. But because we're not familiar, we're not attuned to the ways in which there's a greater glory at work, we fail to see that this is really not the glory he wants for us. And over and over and over again, I think our spirituality runs on, up against the rocks on this point. And that we only know how to believe in a God who breaks into the world and sets some small things right. But we don't know how to live with the brokenness of the world. We don't know how to live in the darkness of the world. We don't know how to come to terms with the fact that the light shines, but the darkness remains. Without either falling into despair or living in denial. But the truth is, everyone we pray for to be healed is going to die. And even those who are healed remain broken in other ways. Even when God breaks in and makes a situation right, say there's a relationship that's been broken, even if God intervenes and makes that relationship right, there are other relationships in your life that remain broken. And that one itself may be broken again soon. So some way we have been, I think, fixated on a lesser glory. We know how to have faith for the lesser glory. We don't know how to have faith for whatever this glory is that John keeps telling us is the true glory. And so we have a faith that's stunted, a development that's not matured. We know how to believe in a God who intervenes sometimes to do some things for us. We don't know how to live with a God who's always at work in the world, even when the darkness remains. So now to the story of the turning the water to wine. And I want you to notice how these stories resonate with one another. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And here's your friendly, lovable Jesus again. And Jesus says to her, woman. What concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. So not only is he rudely responding to her, it's as if he's saying, listen, this is their party. I'm just a guest. Why are you asking me to do something about it? And I love Mary's response. She doesn't argue with him. She just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out 
and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine, after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, when I heard this growing up, Jesus performed two miracles here. Not only turned water to wine, he turned wine into non-alcoholic grape juice after that. <laughs> You've got to read between the lines here. And then Jesus says, John says of Jesus, this was the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. He revealed his glory. Now, this is strange in two ways. One, I've already told you, the word glory means revelation. You could read this line as saying, he revealed his revelation. A revelation doesn't need to be revealed. It is already revealed. That's what it means. And yet John says, when glory really comes, you don't see it. When the light really shines, you don't see it. When the glory is truly present, you're not aware of it. So he has to reveal the revelation. He has to reveal the glory. And it's odd in a second way. It doesn't seem like this story actually reveals his glory in any way. Did you notice? Nobody at the wedding, except for the servants who drew the wine, knew what happened. Not even the disciples. The only people at this wedding who know what happened for sure are the few servants, the two or three of them, who dipped the water out of the pots and carried it to the steward. Nobody at the party knows what happened, except that there's some really good non-alcoholic wine being served here at the end. How is that a revelation of glory? And it, even if they had known that he had turned the water to wine, how is that glorious? So Jesus can turn water to wine. What does that tell us about who he is? I think it tells us everything. Because here's the way we've imagined glory. We've imagined glory as God's revelation that is so undeniable that it leaves us outside as mere observers and witnesses. That when the glory of God shows up, it's clear. God is God and we're not. And God does what God does and we remain sidelined. Watching it, celebrating it, loving it or hating it. But we remain here as observers of the glory of God. But what happens in both of these stories is that John shows us that the true glory of God does not leave us as observers. It makes us participants. You notice when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, the first word he speaks is, take away the stone. Take away the stone. Now, he doesn't need them to do it. His own resurrection, when, his, when he's raised from the dead, no one moves the stone. The stone is just moved. But in this case, when his glory is revealed, it begins by calling on their participation. Move the stone. And when they roll away the stone, then he calls Lazarus out, and Lazarus come out bound. And his last word is, unbind him. Take the cloths off his face and hands and feet. Let him walk. And then when we come to the story of the turning the water to wine, his first word is, fill the pots with water. Now again, he doesn't need them to fill the pots with water. He's not a magician. 
He's the one who called water into being in the first place. And yet he says, I can't reveal my glory without you filling pots with water and you carrying the water to the steward. Because here's here's the greater glory. The greater glory is God calling us in to share, in to participate with his own life. You remember Isaiah's prophecy, I am God and there is no other and I will share my glory with no one. And the theology of the Gospel of John is that I am God, there is no other, and therefore I share my glory with everyone. John 17, Jesus is praying his final prayer as he's entering into the moment of the cross, and this is what he prays. Father, I pray for those whom you have given me that you would give them my glory that you shared with me in the beginning so that the world may know that they are in me and I am in you and that we are one. Do you hear what he's saying? You've shared it with me, and I've shared it with them. Now make it so that they can share it with all the world. I am God, there is no other, and therefore I share my glory with everyone. Because when God's glory comes in fullness, we participate in it, and sometimes we don't even know we're participating in it. Now here's where this shifts out of a sermon into just testimony. I'm just sharing with you what I'm living with right now. I feel like the way that I've been discipled, trained, developed as a Christian is to believe in a God who acts for me. I believe in a God who can intervene in the world and make things right. But part of that development has been the belief that that leaves me without responsibility, except the responsibility to believe that God can do that. So when I'm thinking about big picture issues, I'm thinking about geopolitical and sociocultural issues, when I'm thinking about things like terrorism and torture and racism, or if I'm thinking about smaller picture issues like friendships and brokenness within our, within our friendships and how we raise our children and how we make day-to-day decisions about the kind of life we're going to live, I tend to think about those as primarily me believing God will break in and do something. That if there's evil in the world, my job is to pray that God will break in and do something about that evil. If there's injustice, my job is to believe that God will somehow break in and do something about the injustice. If there's some kind of fracture in a relationship, that my job is to pray that God will do something. And there are times that he does. There are still times in our world in which God's word to us is stand still and see the salvation of God. You don't do anything, I'm going to intervene. But here's what I'm coming to realize. That's lesser glory. Because when that glory comes, when God comes in that way, we're left outside. We're not participants. We're just observers. We're just seeing what God is doing. But we're not becoming what he meant for us to become. We're not developing into the creatures he means for us to be. We're not becoming one with him, like him. Because that kind of glory makes it clear. God is God and we're not. When the greater glory is God is God and we share in God's life. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about the brokenness in the world, the ways in which all of creation, all things are under the bondage of sin. 
And it, he says that creation is screaming, groaning, travailing, waiting for salvation. But you know what Paul says in Romans 8? It's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God so that it might share in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, this is going to sound absurd. But did you know creation, the broken creation, is not waiting on God? It's waiting on us. It's not waiting on God. It's waiting on us. Creation is groaning not for God to intervene, but for us to participate in the greater glory because it's only when we participate in the greater glory that his glory covers the earth as waters cover the sea. In our tradition, we have nurtured people, I'm convinced, we've nurtured people to believe in a God who can break in and show his glory. We have not taught people how to participate in that glory. And so we believe that glory is about God's acting for us rather than seeing glory is about our taking responsibility for what God is doing in the world. So when we think about big picture issues or we think about small personal issues, what I want to challenge you with is this. We have to start to realize that Jesus is standing there saying to us, take away the stone and fill the pots with water. You look at the racism that's in the world, we have to pray for God to do something about that. And we have to move the stone. Now, it's going to look different in every moment. In every, it depends on where you're acting in the world, what your role is, what your calling is. But we have to recognize that the greater glory is when we take up responsibility for the darkness and the brokenness in the world and we begin to participate with God's making it right. Not just asking God to do it, but doing something about it. Not just waiting for God to strike in a way that sets the world right, but stepping into difficult circumstances and speaking the words we can speak, being present in the way we can be present, doing whatever we can to move that stone and fill those pots with water. There, there are a couple of ways, I think, that we've, at least those who've been shaped like I've been shaped, have been misshaped. And this story of turning water to wine gets at this for me. One is, I think we sometimes feel the pressure to turn the water to wine ourselves. That our job is to make things right. That we have to go out into the world and make the kingdom happen. But the truth is, I don't turn water to wine, and I don't raise the dead. No word I say, no book I write, no conversation I have, no prayer I pray is going to make the world right. I don't raise the dead and I don't turn water to wine, but I can fill pots and I can move stones. I can participate in that way. And the other mistake I think we make is that we feel like our job is to tell everyone about what's happened. One of the things I love about the turning the water to wine story is that his glory is revealed and nobody knows it was revealed. Now, the way I've been shaped, if I were at the wedding and the water had been turned to wine, I wouldn't leave. I would be going to every guest and saying, listen, you like that wine? Jesus did that. Because if, if he's going to get the glory, I have to make it known that he's the one who did it. And so much of our energy as Christians, I think, is spent either trying to turn the water to wine ourselves or feeling like we have to let everybody know, hey, Jesus did this. But hear me, that's not actually his glory. Did you know God is so humble that he gets glory in goodness breaking into the world even when he doesn't get credit for it yeah. 
Every time enemies are reconciled, Jesus is at work, and it's for his glory, even if those enemies have no idea who Jesus is. Whenever hungry kids are fed, Jesus is the one who's doing it, and whether those kids or their parents or their families ever know that Jesus did it, it's still his glory. Every time anything good happens in this world, Jesus is doing it. And our responsibility is not to make Jesus famous. It's to participate in what he's doing in the world to make sure hungry kids get fed, to make sure prisoners are visited, to make sure that enemies are reconciled, to make sure that justice is being brought to unjust situations, to make sure that peace is being brought in the midst of conflict, that we are teaching people how to forgive and how to love and how to turn the other cheek and how to go the extra mile. And we will know all along, wherever this is happening, that's Jesus. Our first responsibility is not to tell them that it's Jesus, it's to be Jesus in those situations. And sometimes, and I know this is going to sound absurd, sometimes we can't tell them it's Jesus. Did you notice over and over and over in Jesus' ministry, he performs something and then his first word after the miracle is, don't tell anyone. And sometimes I think we're in such a hurry to tell people about the God we believe in rather than to participate with the God we believe in that it betrays the fact that we don't really believe in God. We are so afraid that this God isn't real. We're trying to talk others into it. But the truth is, when we come into the greater glory, we know he is the one doing every good thing. And whether they recognize it or not, we know we dipped the water out of those pots and we saw him turn it to wine. And whether they recognize it or not, we know who he is, and what he's done. And what would happen in in your life and in my life, on a small scale and a large scale, if we really believed we were supposed to move the stone and turn the water to wine? Not turn the water to wine, but fill the pots of water. What, What would happen if, and every time I run up against that kind of brokenness in the world, I recognize that God is calling me to responsibility? Not just to pray for him to do something, but for me to do something. This is so counterintuitive for me. I'm almost done. You can stand with me if you will. This is so counterintuitive. Because I think we are so set to think that that responsibility is God's. But what he's doing is sharing it with us. Just... A couple of examples, and then we'll pray. The kingdom is not just about people coming to know that Jesus is Lord or confessing it. The kingdom is him being Lord in a situation. And I hope I can find a way to say this clearly. There was a man named uh, Blumhardt, Johann Blumhardt, who was a German Lutheran pastor in the 1800s. And he has this experience where there's a woman in his congregation who's demonized, and he had no expectation of what do you do with a demon. Over the course of several years, he discovers the ways in which darkness is at work in the world, and the power of God is against it, and Christ is victor. And as he comes through that experience, he has this revelation that he sums up this way. This is what he says. Every Christian has to experience two conversions. First, a conversion from the world to God. And then at maturity, from God to the world. 
And here's what Bloomhart meant, I think. That when we come to maturity, when we come to the greater glory, what we realize is that God is giving us responsibility for the world as it is. So look around at this world. Look at all of the brokenness in the natural world, in our social relationships, in our cultures. And here's what I want you to hear the Lord saying. That's yours. That's yours. Do something about it. In our tradition, we don't think of it as ours. We think of it as God's to do with what God wants to do or as the devil's to do with as the devil wants to do. But Romans 8 tells us the creation is groaning, waiting for us to step into our manifestation as the sons of God and into our freedom in the glory God has given us. The brokenness that is in the world right now is ours to do something about. We can't turn water to wine, but we can carry the water. We cannot make everything right, but we can participate in God making things right. But that begins with accepting the responsibility. It begins with recognizing that I have to do more than ask God to do something. I have to get my hands dirty. I have to make difficult relationships. I have to let my blood and sweat and tears be poured into this world as it is, moving it along toward the kingdom. Not just waiting for God to break in, being God breaking in. Not just waiting for God to speak, being the voice of God. Not just waiting for God's hands to touch, being God's hands to touch. That's what we're called to. And that's not liberal. That's not social gospel. That is the gospel. And we can have discussions, and we'll have to have discussions about what that looks like, how we get involved. All I want you to hear me saying this morning is, it's our responsibility to be involved. And it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment to know how best to be involved. But it's ours to do. And the glory he wants to be revealed cannot be revealed until there are people who will move the stone and fill the pots with water. And here's the beauty of that. When we do it, when we do it, his glory comes. And it may not be the glory we thought it was going to be, and it may not be the glory the world wants it to be, but it will be his glory. It's what we were meant for. I want to pray for you, and then pastor's going to come. Father, I pray that you'll let me settle under this weight. The weight of this glory that you mean to give to me and you mean to give to all of us. Forgive us, God, for the ways in which we've shirked responsibility in the name of believing in you. Teach us how to take responsibility faithfully. Not to do more than we're asked to do. Not to do what we're not supposed to do, but to do what we are called to do. To participate in the way we are called to participate. God, as we confront day to day the brokenness in our lives and in the world, give us ears to hear you saying to us, move the stone, fill the pots with water. And give us the confidence to know that if we do that, your glory will be revealed. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. 
And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary, or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com, or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.